Amen. So Hezekiah, one of the, uh, one of the godliest kings, uh, arguably maybe the godliest outside of David, uh, as Pastor Tony said last week. And so uh, we're into the middle part of Hezekiah. I think we may have a week or so left on him because there's so much information. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to combine two chapters. And uh, what's fascinating, and if you, if you spend some time studying this, you'll see that there's a lot of intertwining into a lot of uh, both the prophets uh, of the northern and southern kingdom and uh, a lot of the intertwining of the kings between the northern and the southern kingdom. So a few weeks ago, I preached on Hosea, uh, and so we talked about him a few weeks ago, and so I'll reference him again tonight uh, because he is a contemporary uh, of Hezekiah, and so there were some uh, time frames that overlapped as with Isaiah, which we'll also look at some here tonight. And so on the top of your handout, uh, we're going to start in 2 Kings chapter 18. I try to mention this every week. So on the bottom of your handout, the very end, there are Scripture references. So I will reference some other Scriptures not in 2 Kings tonight. Uh, I try to list those in order, so those should be in order. So if you want to go back and look at those uh, or, you know, write them in to your notes uh, to where they would go so you can go back and reference that. But that is... All the scripture tonight will not be on the board, but it will be on your handout. So 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 7 is where we start. It says, the Lord was with him, uh, which of course is Hezekiah. And it says, wherever he went out, he prospered. Well, that's pretty good, right? I mean, that makes you feel really good about Hezekiah. And if he were reading uh, the uh, autobiography of himself, uh, it would be quite encouraging. It says that he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So the text leads us to believe that he prospered against the king of Assyria. Well, last week, or two weeks ago rather, uh, when we studied Hosea, Hosea did not prosper uh, against the king of Assyria. So here's Hezekiah, very similar situation. Hosea, again, was the last king of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. And here is Hezekiah, king of the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And Hezekiah was anti-Assyrian. Now, it would be very easy to be anti-Assyrian during that time. There were lots of things that they were involved in that certainly not were, that were not for God, and even some things that they were involved in that seemed to be anti-humanity. Uh, and so he was against the Assyrians, whereas his father Ahaz was an Assyrian uh, accomplice. He, he liked the Assyrians. So long as Sargon remained on the throne of Assyria, Hezekiah wisely did not antagonize the Assyrians. And so uh, he was aware of Sargon's prowess, and so he didn't mess with him. With the ascension, though, of Sennacherib, which was Sargon's son, Hezekiah judged that Assyria was not so strong. And so you see here, and I mean, we could have spent a whole, the whole night talking about leadership and how uh, leadership, that is, uh, what, what it portrays about the organization or what it portrays about the church or certainly here what it portrays about a nation. And Sennacherib was not a very good leader, and it showed. And so Hezekiah decided... Well, I'm going to join an alliance with neighboring nations, and I'm going to oppose this northern foe. And so he began to make preparations for the anticipated retaliation of Assyria. Now, remember, does this not sound familiar with Hosea? Remember, he decided, I'm not going to pay uh, the money to Assyria. I'm instead going to go to Egypt. Remember, we spent a lot of time talking about that and why in the world he would do that. Well, Hezekiah almost follows in the same footsteps. And so he goes and he makes some alliances. We'll see at the end where it's revealed that it was ultimately Egypt, but he makes some alliances. And so this was the period of time where Hosea was taken captive and the nation of Israel came to an end. And so at this point, Israel is no longer a nation. Now it's just Judah. The last two uh, tribes of Israel, uh, which make up Judah, the southern kingdom, are the only thing that's left. Now, as I was thinking through this, you have to imagine that this must have given Assyria great confidence. They just eradicated a nation. So in terms of war, you know, there was, uh, you know, think back to uh, World War II and the attempt to eradicate the Jewish nation. Well, that's what Assyria thinks that they have done. Now, it, it would be fascinating. I hope this doesn't come off confusing, but if you, uh, if you go back and look at the 1040 window, 
okay, uh, longitude and latitude. And if you go back and read Genesis 11, and you look, you superimpose the nations in Genesis 11, the table of nations, in the 1040 window, you're going to find Assyria in the middle of that. And so these are the nations that don't follow after God. So when there was a division in Genesis 11, which is all where all this started, uh, they began to pursue their own gods. And God, in chapter 12, what did he do of Genesis? He sent Abraham to be the father of his people, which, of course, is Israel. It's, it's fascinating to tie all this together. And so here is Assyria, or, you know, in a lot of cases, especially here, this represents the enemy, thinking that he has completely eliminated the entire Jewish nation. And so they've eliminated Israel. Now he's got his sights set on Judah, which there's only two tribes left. And so if he zeroes them out, guess what happens? The remnant of God is over. Now, what do we know? In hindsight, we can look back over the lineage of the Israelites, and we see that through the tribe of Judah, who comes from that tribe? Jesus, right? And so the implications or the stakes are very, very high. Now, I choose to believe that the enemy's not that smart, and so I choose to believe that he got lucky and that he thought, if I can just eliminate him, then so be it, that he doesn't have the foresight that God has. And so here is the enemy trying to do everything that he can to completely eradicate the Jewish nation. And so imagine what the enemy must be thinking at this point. He has the power to overcome the last remnant of God's people. He's already eliminated Israel. And so it was probably a very highly confident gotcha moment. Don't you think? I mean, I'm thinking that the enemy is probably feeling pretty good about himself. So if you are here tonight and you feel like you have been in the crosshairs of the enemy, I want you to listen up. I think tonight will really be helpful for you. So I want to start with the principle. And so the first principle that we're going to see tonight is that impossible is where God works the best. If it can be explained by man, man probably did it. But impossible is where God tends to work the best. And so here is the nation of Judah at the mercy, seemingly, of uh, the Assyrian nation. They don't really have a great leader, uh, which is kind of a moot point at this point because uh, Assyria seems ready and able to take over Judah. And so we pick up a few verses later in 2 Kings chapter 18 uh, in verse 13. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so King Hezekiah has been around for a while, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. And so some time has lapsed And Sennacherib says, all right, well, I'm going to take up cities. And so he began to systematically dismantle the nation of Judah. And Hezekiah, verse 14, king of Judah, sent to king of Assyria at Lachish, and he says, I have done wrong. So Hezekiah says, hey, we're not going to survive. I'm going to apologize. So he sends a letter. I'm sorry. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required, you'll need to remember this, he required of King Hezekiah of Judah 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So basically he said, well, if you pay me, we'll call it even. He required him to do that, okay? Verse 15, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. So he begins to dismantle all the ornate things uh, that they had put on the temple, all the ways that they had decorated, all the ways that they had used gold. And the king of Assyria sent to Tartan the Rapsaris and the Rabshakeh, which is a phenomenal name, as I've read that so many times this week. How would you like that to be your job title? You are the Rabshakeh. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of liking that. Maybe we can create a ministry position here at the church, the Rabshakeh. It means governor, basically. But All right, it says, it says uh, so he, he sent to these guys, the governor, with a great army 
uh, to, to King Hezekiah Jerusalem. And they went up and they came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. So we get very specific details about this interaction. Okay, so the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sends some information, and he sends some people, and he says, I want you to go to Hezekiah, because, and we'll learn in just a second what he's going to say, but it's about to go down. So they're about to have this battle, and so he surrounds Jerusalem. Now, Ahaz, we remember a few weeks earlier, he had faced the same challenge against Aram at the same place. Fascinating. And Isaiah had told Ahaz, which again, Isaiah the prophet is the contemporary here. He told Ahaz that they would not fall to the enemy, that God would deliver them, that the Lord would deliver them. But remember, Ahaz refused to believe Isaiah. Now, in the same exact place, Hezekiah is confronted with the message of deliverance from the same man of God. So I don't know about you, but I would build my house right there in that spot. I would move and I would live in that spot. Apparently, that's where God likes to give really positive messages, right? And so that would be the place that you would go. And so here we are in the same place where now twice, it's about to be, we'll learn, that God has given a message of deliverance for His people. Now, what's fascinating, I found an account. uh, There was an inscription uh, that was left supposedly uh, by these guys, uh, the, the Rabshakeh, the guys that came from the king of Assyria. And this, they wrote what, um, this was through, through Josephus the historian. And this is what he wrote. It says, in his own subsequent account of events, he declared, because, and this is what he said, because King Hezekiah, king of Judah, would not submit to my yoke, I came up against him, and by force of arms and by the might of my power, I took 46 of his strong fenced cities. This is the king of Assyria talking, Sennacherib. And it says, of the smaller towns that were scattered about, I took and plundered a countless number. Hezekiah himself I shut up in Jerusalem, his capital city, like a bird in a cage, building towers around the city to hem him in and raising banks of earth against the gates so as to prevent escape. So history, which is fascinating, tells us what Sennacherib is thinking in this moment, all right? Right here at this moment, at the end of 2 Kings 18, verse 17, that's what Sennacherib is thinking. I've got him. I've got him surrounded. This is, I've already captured 46 large cities and countless smaller cities. This is my time. And so he goes in to attack uh, Jerusalem. And so he goes to send a letter, all right? And so here is our first point that I want us to look at tonight. The world will never abide by the same rules. The world will never abide by the same rules. Now, where do we get that from the text today? Well, remember what happened. Remember what happened. Sennacherib was mad because Hezekiah didn't pay his tribute. And so uh, Hezekiah said, hey, my bad. Sorry about that. I should have done it. Um, Here's some money. What do I need to do? And he said, remember, it is required, and he told him how much to pay. And so he said, okay, if you do this, we'll be good, all right? And then what did he do? They're not good. He sends an army now to overtake Jerusalem. Now, at this point, if you're Hezekiah, you got to be thinking, time out, buddy. No, I just I stripped the gold off of my front door, all right? We made a deal. You said if I give you money that we're good. And it doesn't look like we're good when you're surrounding my city and you're cutting off all the supplies, right? And so often in our own lives, don't we want that? Don't we want to live in a world where we all play by the same rules? Don't we want to live in a world where everybody treats us like we want to be treated and we treat everybody like they should be treated the way that we want to be treated, right? I mean, you should all be given a hearty amen to that because that is the truth. You see, Hezekiah complied and yet he was still attacked. That doesn't seem very fair to me. So here's a question. Have you ever had a situation where you complied with the world's expectations, and yet you still lost? Have you ever noticed 
Have you ever noticed that when you abide by the world's rules that you always lose? Am I the only one that feels that way? Right? When you abide by everything that the world expects, you always end up losing. Now, you know, in the world's eyes, it may seem like you won, but you don't feel that way, right? As a believer, when you do what the world expects and you meet all the criteria, you check all the boxes or whatever, you always get to the end and you're like, I just don't feel like I won there, right? Well, here's the thing that we we have to remember. We have to stop expecting things to be fair, We have to stop expecting things to be fair. That's what we want, right? Like our flesh tells us if it could just be fair, right? How many times have we heard fair in the last election and and all the things, like everything in the world, well, it's got to be fair. And we've got the Olympics and all the controversy over the Olympics. And and it just needs to be fair. and, And we want it to be fair. But tell me, for believers, when has it ever been fair? Think about it. Think about it. One of the things that makes my blood boil, and I'm telling you makes me mad, is the story of John the Baptist. I mean, have you read that story? Like, are we okay with the fact that some lady was dancing and decided that she wanted his head on a platter and they delivered it? I'm not okay with that. Right? I mean, I feel, I feel like he had a few more things left in the tank. You know, I'm, I mean, he was weird, let's, you know, let's be honest, right? Locusts and honey, and he had crazy hair and everything, but he loved Jesus. And yet, he died the most senseless death I could possibly imagine. It wasn't fair. When has it ever been? When was, was the crucifixion fair? I mean, look at all of the things that Jesus endured, all of the slander, all of the lies, all of the fabricated things against Jesus, and yet he took it. He took it. I mean, just like Pastor Tony preached a couple Wednesday nights ago about, hey, look, when, when things are spoken against you, right, you just, you, you just need to eat it. Like, it's not my job to defend my reputation, and so we, we want fair, right? I know we all, you may be in the middle of a situation right now, and your heart says, they better give me fair. But let me be the bearer of bad news is it's not going to be fair by the world standards. It's not going to be fair. It never has been fair. And so here's Hezekiah, a man of God, arguably, again, one of the greatest godly kings of Judah, and he finds himself in a situation where he has been very unfairly treated. You see, when it's fair, both sides equally benefit, right? If we say, okay, I've got $50, and we're going to be fair, I'm going to give you half, and I'm going to keep half. We both end up with 25 right? So when we talk about fair, we're talking about equality, right? That both sides mutually benefit. When will there ever be a situation in your life where good and evil mutually benefit? That's not going to happen. Now, listen, I know the flesh says I want it because I'm a one, you know, personality-wise, and I want fair, all right? My personality says, let it be fair. I want it to be fair, And I want to do everything in my power for it to be fair. But it's never going to be fair. And so here's what, I don't want to leave you with, oh, well, he's right. We're never going to get a fair shot. Look, here's what God wants. God's not in pursuit of fair. God is in pursuit of faith in the midst of unfair. That's what God wants. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be focused on Him to be committed to his resolution, not to our resolution, because we're never going to get a fair shake when it comes to the enemy. He's always going to cross his fingers behind his back. He's always going to have a devious second, uh, you know, second option planned behind his back, and you're never going to outsmart him. You see, God wants us to be faithful in the midst of unfair, because guess what? When you stand up for Jesus, you're going to be wrongly persecuted. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 16, take heart, I've overcome that, right? That it's going to happen, but you need to stay focused on faith. Stay focused on faith. Hosea did not pay the money to Assyria, 
And guess what happened? They attacked him and they put him in captivity. Hezekiah did pay the money to Assyria, and guess what happened? They attacked him. It's not fair. It's not fair. And so we see this situation where we want it to be, and so the world is never going to play by the same rules. You see, in 2 Kings 18.25, it says, Moreover, so they're, they're coming up and they say, look, here's what uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib said. And so he's telling them all these things. In verse 25, we pick up. He said, it's the, it is, without, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? Now, again, this kind of makes me mad, right? He's lying. He says, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, it gets a little tricky right here, doesn't it? It gets tricky. So here's someone who shows up at the doorstep of Judah. The nation of Israel has already been taken captive. Uh, you study other prophets and you hear uh, you know, them proclaiming the demise, Jeremiah's one, of the Babylonian captivity that, hey, it's about to happen. And Jeremiah told them, get comfortable. You're not leaving anytime soon. Right? And so we see that the judgment of God is coming on the unfaithful of Israel, right? We're, we're familiar with that. The nation of Israel certainly was. They just came out of captivity. And so they're familiar with that. They're familiar that if you don't follow after God, if you don't pursue the things of God, that there will be judgment. There's consequences to your actions for not following God. The nation of Israel is very familiar with that. And so Hezekiah is standing at the gate, and he is, he is imminently being attacked, and he is told, God told me to come and attack you. What do you say? Right? Is it true? God, are you judging us? Is this the judgment of God? That would be a great question. I would ask that question. God, is this the punishment for the consequences of our other worship? Is this what this is? So it would be very difficult to say, that's not true. Right? It would be hard to know. So let's unpack it a little bit. Well, the first thing I think that we learned from this is that the world will attempt to use God to their advantage. Remember, our point here is that the world doesn't play by the same rules. And so I believe that what we see is the world will attempt to use God to their advantage. I'm sure you've seen this before. He claimed that he heard from God. Anybody can say that, right? Clearly, he was familiar with the activity of God. Think about it. What did he say? That God told us to go against this land and to destroy it. How did the Israelites get into the promised land? By going up against nations and overtaking them, right? Isn't that what happened? And so he's familiar, clearly, with the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. And it sounded very familiar. It, it sounded very similar. Just like last week with the Nehushtan, right? Another fun word. Hezekiah had to be laser-focused. Last week, remember, the idol worship that they began, they, something that God gave them, they began to worship it more than God, and Hezekiah destroyed it. That's in uh, under authority 10, if you missed last week. And so Hezekiah had to be laser-focused on discerning what God desired and what was true. Because in our own walk, we can often have what are called sacred cows, Right? in our own life, and we can fall in love with the image of God instead of God himself. And so what happened with the uh, Israelites here is they fell in love with the response of God to them that happened in the past instead of depending upon God to make his mercies new every day, right? Even in the Exodus, they did the same thing. They tried to hoard manna. It's a continual thing. And so Hezekiah had to be focused on, God, is this what you really want me to do? Because, God, I just want you to know, if I destroy this, everybody's going to be mad at me. Right? And so we're in the same situation. God, if I send all of my warriors out here to fight against these people and they, they all die and their families are left to be taken into captivity, when if, you, if this is your judgment, I want to know. I need to know that. Right? So the world is trying to use God to their advantage. So here's the question. See, the Israelites had been warned for years that God was going to judge them and their other worship was allowing them to be taken into captivity. How does he know this is not true? How does he know? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of things. 
Here's how we know that it wasn't true. Number one, God is a God of order. And when God moves nations, God speaks to their leaders. Right? Think about how did did Israel come out of Egypt? By their leader. How did Israel go into the promised land? By their leader. How did Israel move with Solomon and David and all through the kingships? By their leader. Right? God is not going to tell the wife something about the family that he doesn't tell the leader of the family, the husband, right? God is not going to circumvent authority. It's a great principle here. And so when we see him saying, oh, well, God told me that we needed to destroy you because of your uh, insubordination, because you're not following God. No, if God's going to move a nation, he's going to tell that nation, right? He told Israel, you're going into captivity. The Babylonians are going to come get you. Uh, Jeremiah was sounding the trumpet, right? And guess what happened? They were taken into captivity. And so, number one, God is a God of order. And so, if the nation of Israel is to be subjected to that, I I believe God would have told them that. Number two, it never happened. I'm letting the cat out of the bag here, but they never obeyed. Assyria never attacked Jerusalem. Assyria never took them into captivity. We're going to see why in a second. So if, in fact, God told them to do that, why didn't they do it? That's a good question, isn't it? So it's not true, and it clearly indicates that they're not following God. They're using God to their advantage. I mean, we see that, unfortunately, a lot in our world today, that there's a lot of people who use God to their advantage when it benefits them. You see, here's the principle for us, is that people who attempt to use God to their advantage typically talk more about God than obeying God, right? They want to just say, oh, well, here's what God said, and here's what God said, and here's what God said, and here's what God said. Well, when are you going to do what God said, right? I mean, that's the situation that we found ourselves in in the world today is we got more people talking about God and less people obeying God. We don't need any more people talking about God. We need more people obeying God. And so here's the Assyrian nation who's claiming to pursue Yahweh God because that's what God told them to do, at least that's what they said, and yet they don't obey. And so in our own lives, we can look around and say, am I talking more about God than I am serving God? Right? We don't, we don't need anybody else talking a good game. So if that's your, you're here tonight and you like to talk a lot, but you're not serving or you're not involved in the things of God or you're not obeying God, well, just close your mouth, stop talking, and start following. Right? That's what God needs. That's what God desires. And that's what Hezekiah did. We'll see it at the end. But that's what Hezekiah did. You see, we have to be very careful. This is dangerous. We have to be very careful not to just believe what benefits us. We like easy believism, don't we? We like convenient theology. We like to only do things that we're the recipient of God's blessings. We want that. The flesh desires that. Remember, the world doesn't play by the same rules. And so we have to be careful that we don't just do things that benefit us. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but, this is Paul, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, he, then I am strong. Then God is strong in me, right? So we have to be careful that we, not, that we don't just participate in the things of God that benefit us. So here's our question. This is a hard one, okay? Is your faith capable of obeying when you don't benefit? Is your faith capable? So is the God that you serve in the faith system that you exist in, is it capable of obeying when you don't benefit? Here's an easy, this is an easy test to kind of tiptoe into the water. How about giving to someone in need and they never know it was you? 
That's a simple one, right? You know of a need and you give, but you don't get credit. That is obeying when you don't benefit. Here's a little more difficult one. What about following God into difficulty, uncertainty, or danger? That one gets a little trickier, doesn't it? Is my faith capable of obeying when I don't benefit? Is my faith capable of obeying God when it's difficult? Is my faith capable of obeying God when it's uncertain? Isn't that what faith is? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Is my faith capable of obeying God when it's dangerous? You see, the key here is knowing the character of God and knowing what God's desires are, right? Hezekiah had to know the God that he followed. So God's desire was to preserve Israel, and Hezekiah knew that, all right? And so let's pick up in 2 Kings 18, verse 26. Uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. So he says, look, man, the people, they're listening. And I'm going to need you to not speak in that language because they're going to hear what you're saying and it's going to upset them. They're going to be upset, right? So he's trying to protect the people. He says, uh, we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my servant sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? So he has no mercy, no negotiating. God told us to do this, and I want everybody to know. And so the Rabshakeh stood, and he called out. So as, as if to you know, create a scene, he cried out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He said, don't listen to Hezekiah. For the king of Assyria says, make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you will eat of your own vine and each of you will eat of your own fig tree and each of you will drink from your own water cistern until I come and take away your land like, yours, like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. This is, again, it's reminiscent of the promised land. That you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath or Arpad? Where are the gods of, uh, some S word, Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all of the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem. So he says, hey guys, Hezekiah is a liar. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know the outcome of this. Let me help you. I want to be your friend. I want to make it better for you. So not only does the world use God to their advantage, number two, the world will attempt to mock God. So he's mocking God now. The Lord, when Hezekiah tells you the Lord will deliver you, he's not going to deliver you. How about the other gods of all the other nations? Where are they? To which my response will be, well, that's actually a little g, and there's a difference, right? That's what I would say. So he says, where are you? You know, why, why would you believe in such a thing? You see, to mock God is to disrespect, to dishonor, or to ignore him. That's what it means to mock God. Now, I know in our own uh, ideologies that we would think, you know, we would surmise that mocking God is this major offense and that only a select group of people do it. 
uh, you know, like the guys who told Jesus on the cross, you know, save yourself. And, you know, that would be mocking God. That's what we would, we would define as, right? Well, from Pharaoh to the Pharisees to our culture today, mocking God has always been a strategy of the enemy. But what if mocking God is not just spitting in the face of Jesus, not just completely ignoring or disowning God? What if it is also something else? Charles Finney, a preacher in the 1800s, he wrote about the effects of mocking God. And this is what he wrote. He says, to mock God is to pretend to love and serve Him when we do not. To act in a false manner, to be insincere and hypocritical in our professions, pretending to obey Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to worship Him when we do not. Mocking God grieves the Holy Spirit and sears the conscience. And thus the bands of sin become stronger and stronger, and the heart becomes gradually hardened by such a process. So is it possible that mocking God is not simply disrespect, dishonor, and ignoring, but it's also pretension? You see, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So he's telling, you know, Paul, of course, is telling the church at Galatia, but we see here again with Sennacherib that God is saying, no, you're not going to mock me. That's not how this works. It says the king heard, 2 Kings 19.9, concerning uh, the king of Cush, behold, he has set out to fight against you. And so he sent messengers again to Hezekiah saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust, that's a big G there, by the way, pay attention, in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of king Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all of the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in the Telassar? So he says, you're deceiving yourself. He says, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Es, the king of Hena, the king of Eva? Right? He's asking, where are these people? And so... The third thing that we see about the world not playing by the same rules is that the world will also attempt to dismiss God. Attempt to dismiss God. So now they're saying it's not possible. We went from God told us to do it to God's not even capable of doing it. Do you see that? He's not even capable. And so... You know, simply just one thing I want to say about this. The world will attempt to dismiss God. The greatest factor in everyone's life is the God factor. The greatest factor in the believer's life is the God factor. The greatest factor in an unbeliever's life is the God factor. It is the greatest factor in everyone's life, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. And so it's... it's irrelevant that Assyria acknowledged Yahweh God, Jehovah God, as God. It's irrelevant. With our world today, it's irrelevant who believes what. It's irrelevant, right? It doesn't matter if the world, if we are a Christian nation or we're not a Christian nation. It doesn't change God. It doesn't matter if it's promoted gospel or it's not promoted gospel. It's still the gospel, Right? None of that matters. What matters is what? Our faith in the midst of unfair. And so here's the world not playing by the same rules because it's never going to do that. And so what we have to focus on is the reality that every single human, including the king of Assyria at this point, has a God factor in their life, Jehovah God factor, and it is the only factor that matters, which leads us to the second point, and that is that God doesn't abide by the world's rules. How about that, right? The world doesn't abide by God's rules. Well, they don't have to because God doesn't abide by the world's rules. God doesn't abide by the world's rules. This ought to encourage you. 
All right, look, 2 Kings 19, 14, we're going to pick up. Hezekiah received the letter. He received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. So they wrote this letter and said, hey, we're coming, so just give up. And so Hezekiah gets this bad news, and what does he do with it? He goes to God. He doesn't go to his neighbor or his friend or his buddy or Facebook. He goes to God, right? He goes to God, and he says, God, help. He said, it says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to what? Mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, little g, and Uh, For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What a great prayer. So he goes to God. Remember, our point is God does not abide by the world's rules. So he goes to God, and he lays it out before God, and he says, God, only you can do something. Only you can do something. Now, I want you to see that, I want you to notice some things that are not present in the text. He did not say, give us superpowers. He did not say, blind them. He did not say, send another nation to help us. He did not say any of that. What did he say? He said, please save us. So why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, so oftentimes in our lives, we expect God to respond within the confines of our expectations or our understanding. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. We go before God with the problem, and what do we say? Here's what I think you should do, God. Here's what would be great if you would do, God. Here's what I need you to do, God. And all of that is from what? It is from human perspective. It's from a human perspective. We've all dealt with this. I mean, this week, Pastor Tony and I have a friend that, you know, is dealing with major issues. And, you know, we've been praying, and I don't know how it's going to end, right? But I know God, right? And so we, we say, I'm not going to ask you to do something that I don't understand. That's hard, isn't it? Because we got some ideas. Here's what I want you to do, God. It'd be awesome if you did this, God. And, and those things may be true. But we, we're so confined by time and space to see that situation, and we want God to fix that situation in a way that would make us feel good about it. But God doesn't abide by the world's rules. And for us, it's the limitation of our understanding. And I acknowledge that. I understand that. I know that I don't have the capacity. God is God because He is infinitely greater than me. God is God because He infinitely understands more than me. If I think I can understand all the things of God, I have made myself equal with God, and that is heresy. That is blasphemy. It's not true. And so in our own lives, we have to say, God, I don't know what the end result of this will be. And so will you walk with me through this as you commit your will to be done in this situation? Right? That's what we want. Maybe maybe it's not what we want, but it's what we need. I need you to walk with me through this. God, I don't understand this. Right? Have you ever taken a child to get their shots? 
right? And you're holding their hand, and then they realize that I'm about to get a shot, and they just go crazy, right? They're tearing things off the wall. I was that child. that I had to have three or four people to hold me down as a child because I'm terrified of needles. And so they would, they would have to, oh, no, no, it's just a checkup. And so we would get there, and then they would manhandle me on the table and hold me down, and I'm still to this day terrified of needles, Right, and so in that situation, I needed to know that mom was there, right? So in our own life, we just have to know God's there. That's what Hezekiah needed. You see, the good news is that God is not restricted by what I think. That he's not going to do what I want. He's going to do what's best. And that's hard sometimes, right? Like we don't know. We don't, we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the details. And so we say, well, God, here's what I, what I think you should do. So I just want to challenge us that the weapons, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So stop using those. Stop using what you understand. Stop using what you expect to defeat the enemy. Start using the divine power that destroys strongholds. You see, God is not confined by time and space. Aren't you glad of that? Next week, we're going to see an amazing example of how God changed the clock for Hezekiah. He changed the clock. It's unbelievable. God is not confined by time and space. God's resources are unlimited. There is nothing by which He can't utilize, access, and use. You see, God has access to the beginning and the end. We only have access to right now. That's all we have. Right now. This is what I know. So how did Hezekiah respond? He has this daunting, insurmountable problem in front of him. And here's what he did. He reminded himself of who God is. He reminded himself of who God is. Look what he said. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Remember, everybody's talking about all the kingdoms of the earth, right? What about Haran? What about this guy? What about that nation? And he says, God, above all the nations, above all the kingdoms, you have made every one of them. You have made the heavens. You have made the earth. Incline your ear, O God. He reminded himself of who God is. And he didn't seek personal gain. He didn't ask to be recorded as the greatest king who defeated Assyria. He didn't ask to be elevated to the the greatest power on the land. He said, God, I want your reputation to be known. Look what he said at the end. He said that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. There's no Hezekiah in that. Remember, it's easy to believe what benefits us. Hezekiah didn't want that. 1 Samuel 17, 47 says that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, this is David, not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is not David's, not Goliath's, it is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So he looked at the nine-foot giant said, hey, bro, it's about to end for you because God says it's over. 
right? How about in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15? He said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And Sunday morning, we sang, the battle belongs to you, right? So Hezekiah responded with, God, this is who you are. May your glory be known. So what did God do? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 25, we pick up. Have you not heard that I determined? So, you know, God responds and it says, God says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. So the world doesn't play by the same rules. Number two, God doesn't abide by the world's rules because number three, God always wins. God always wins. That feels good to say. I just want to be honest with you. God always wins. Second, Second Kings chapter 19. Then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus the Lord... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and this is some really good words right here, I have heard. He said, I heard you. God's paying attention to Hezekiah. God, Hezekiah didn't go to God with a list. Hezekiah didn't go with God with all these personal requests. Hezekiah went to God with worship. He went to worship God, and he says, and I, I'm reminded of uh, the, the three guys in Babylon, right? Hananiah, uh, Azariah, and Mishael, and what they say. They said, guess what, bro? We're not going in that fire, and if God don't deliver us, he's still God, right? That's what they told the king. And so I, I see the same situation here that uh, Hezekiah says, God, you are God, and I'm worshiping you. Because why? Because if it went south... He's about to be face-to-face with Jesus, right? Is he not? And so he wins in that situation. Hezekiah wins either way. So God said, I have heard. You see, tonight I want to encourage you that God is aware of everything that is happening. God is aware of everything that is happening There is not a word, there is not an action that does not go unaccounted for. The Bible says that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. God sees everything. So when that evil is perpetrated against you, when that lie is gossiped against you, when whatever accusation is made against you, remember God is looking for faith in the midst of unfair, right? And so God is going to win because why? Because just like he told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, he is saying to us tonight, I hear you. I've heard your cries. I've heard your worship. I've heard your request. Therefore, thus says the Lord, 2 Kings 19.32, says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. And here is what God actually said, not what the Rabshakeh said about God. Right? This is what Jehovah says. He says, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. He said, Look, he's not coming. He says, By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city. And then look what it says declares the Lord. Not said the Lord. Not spoke the word, not, uh, the Lord, not whispered the Lord, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. What does that matter? Because God is a covenant God. And if he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that's a promise, right? 
And God doesn't break promises. And he told David, I want, there will be a lineage. And he says, I don't break my promises. And so God wins. So he says, look, Hezekiah, I got this. It's okay. And that night, verse 35, the angel of the Lord went out. And he struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's a lot of people. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home, and he lived in Nineveh. Interesting, huh? And as he worshipped, as he was worshiping in the house of Nish, Nishrock, his god, we should call him Nimrod, right? Uh, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarahadon, his son reigned in his place. So he is, quote, worshiping a false god in the false god temple, and his own family comes and murders him. Hezekiah didn't do that. Why? Because the battle belongs to God, right? God doesn't abide by the world's rules. God always wins. So I want to give you a couple takeaways. A couple things that we didn't add in that I thought were interesting. Number one, Hezekiah was walking with God before he was attacked. I I think that's important to remember. He was walking with God before he was attacked. Remember our very first verse, we said, The Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. Hezekiah was walking with God. If you want there to be victory in your life for the Lord, you got to walk with the Lord. If you want God to be present in your circumstances, then you've got to be present in your circumstances for God, right? Hezekiah was walking with God long before he was attacked. So if you're here tonight and there's peace in your life, that's fantastic. But there's a battle brewing somewhere. And as long as you're involved in the war of good versus evil, the enemy is always doing what? Seeking whom he may devour, right? So we always have to be on guard. And the way that we do that is Ephesians chapter 6. So the battle for your allegiance happens long before the war starts. The battle for your allegiance happens long before the war starts. Number two, I want you to notice what Hezekiah said to the king of Assyria. Nothing. I love that part. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? He didn't go out there and say, "Um, I bet you can't do it. And then, you know, secretly he's, you know, terrified. Or he didn't say, bring it on. Or he didn't say, well, let me tell you what I think about Assyria. No, he didn't say anything. He didn't say, uh, Give me five minutes. He said nothing. I went back and read through it. Nothing. He didn't say anything. Sennacherib's hurling all these insults and saying all these things about God. And Ezekiah said, okay, we'll see. And he goes back and he worships God instead of responding to what he knew was not true. Stop wasting your time on things that aren't true. Right? Hezekiah didn't say a word. So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us this. Let God respond to the things in your life. Let God respond. If you're always out there running your mouth and defending yourself, when is God going to have a chance? Right? So just be like Hezekiah. When you hear all of the things that are false and you hear all the things that are hurled against you, you just say, I'm going to go talk to God about this. I'm going to go to my closet, and I'm going to worship the God. I'm going to spend time doing something that has eternal value. Me arguing with you over this is pointless. We get so tired. Remember what we said earlier? When people try to take advantage of God, what do they do? They spend more time talking about God than actually obeying God. What if we spent more time talking to God than talking about God? Hezekiah didn't say a word to the king of Assyria because it wasn't worth talking about. So number three, last thing. 
Remain faithful to the things that you know and allow God to work out the rest. Hezekiah wasn't sure how this was going to end, but he knew where to meet with God. And so he was faithful to lay it out before God and say, here's the situation. I'm going to worship you until you give me a word. And God gave him a word. And Isaiah said, look, you're going to win. God's going to preserve you. God has declared your victory. They're not even going to shoot an arrow over here. Right? And so I just want to encourage you tonight. I know these are some things you probably heard before, but it's just a great reminder to know that the world is not going to abide by the same rules. Stop asking for fair. You don't want mutual benefit. We don't want evil to benefit, right? The kingdom is what's paramount here. God is not going to abide by those rules. He doesn't have to because he's not limited to that. Because why? Because he always wins. He is victorious. He knows the end. We don't have that viewpoint. He has that viewpoint. And so our response should be to go before him and say, just as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. Amen?